chapter 1 and verse 18 as we begin a new section, a new portion of the book of Romans. Before we do that, I'm going to ask you to indulge me for just a few moments as we consider some things that we need to have an understanding of, or at least a little bit of a grasp of, before we enter into this new section of Romans. All of us, all of us when we are a very young child, develop a grid in our souls. And I would call it a theological grid, and it's, and it's a good thing that this happens. If it's working the way that God designed it to work, then the initial portions of that grid will be laid down by your parents. The theology that they have is going to be the theology that they pass along to you, and hopefully we pray that our parents pass along good theology to us, but sometimes they didn't, and sometimes they did. Once we get past that, you might be surprised, especially I would encourage those who work with the children, how much of this grid is laid down by Sunday school teachers or by children's church teachers. A great deal of the grid is laid down, and sometimes, even in some of the most famous evangelists, they give the gospel in a, in a little bit of, in a way that I might not give it. They learn that from their Sunday school teachers, and they never, they never change. But what I've got on the board represents a grid that we may have in our soul, and it's a good thing because we have certain theologies that we hold to that we've been taught. We might not necessarily be able to defend them. Okay, that's not part of what I'm talking about with this grid, but at least we have the grid. And then when somebody says something, say like somebody would come say, well, listen, I, I believe that salvation is by grace through faith plus works. Well, that ought to get stuck in the grid. You know, because if you were taught well from an early age, you know, that, good night, <laughs> That's going to hurt their ears outside. Um, yeah, well, Mark, would you go with him? Thanks. See you Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Judge, you might have to go with him too. <laughs> uh, okay. Anyway, we have this grid. It's a good thing, and the grid is formed early on in life. And then as we study the Word of God, new aspects to the grid are added. And uh, they're added... In, in the way that I teach, through biblical theology first and systematic theology second. Right now we're in the middle of a study of the book of Romans. Paul has a theology that he teaches in this book of Romans. Now, not necessarily all the counsel of God it comes, you know, is, is found in this book, but there will be certain things that are found in this book of Romans. And so uh, through this book we'll add certain aspects to the grid that might not have been there before. It's not the whole grid, but certain pieces of data are there so that we, uh, after we study this book, then your, your filter may be a, a little bit different. Hopefully it's a little bit better after we finish. Now here's the part that I want to ask you to, to use some objectivity on. Because these factors in the grid ought to be flexible if, it can be demonstrated from the Word of God that perhaps one of these things is not exactly in the right spot. So let's just say, from the study of Romans, if your grid has, um, has something in it that needs to be altered just a little bit, I would pray that, uh, while that shouldn't happen easily, I mean, grids ought not to be ch your theological grid ought not to be changed easily, I pray that you wouldn't hold to theological aspects of the grid if it can be demonstrated that it ought to be shifted just a little bit one way or another. Okay. There are some issues that will come up. I'm certain there are issues that come up in the study of the book of Romans where your grid might shift just a little bit. 
And I would just hope that you would allow the Holy Spirit to work through you to help you to shift the grid where it needs to be shifted. If you don't, if, if you don't at least have that flexibility of the possibility, you know, so when my Sunday school teacher taught me that, I'm not moving that part of my grid. You know, I don't care what Paul says, and I don't care how clear it is that Paul says that, I'm not changing it. Then that's going to be your loss. Because that's what, that's what biblical theology is. Biblical theology, we take our theology straight, straight from the books of the Bible. Then we synthesize all that together okay, in the grid that we call systematic theology. Now, this grid, these two things, ought to lead us, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy, to a greater love for God and then for our fellow man. Otherwise, I'm going to guarantee you something. The, your systematic theology is flawed, as, as well as your grid. And I'm using, these, I'm using this as a visual for this over here. This grid is a, visual for my, is a visual for my systematic theology. If this doesn't lead me to a greater love for God, then something's wrong with that. Because Timothy tells me so. So biblical theology would be what Paul teaches in Romans, for example. And there are 27 other books that will be added to that to help make up, in the New Testament anyway, and to help make up my systematic theology. So you've got the 66 books of the Bible, 39 old, 27 new, that all put together individually for my biblical theology help to make my systematic theology. And the grid is my illustration of systematic theology. With that in mind, now you're waiting to see what, what part of your grid's changing, don't you? <laughs> I hope you are. I hope you are, because there may be some that needs to be changed, and it may not. But part of my grid changed a few years ago when I studied Romans 118. And I ask you to turn there now. And let's see, uh, let's see if your grid does or if this is the way you always understood it. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following. As we begin the portion of Romans, which deals with man's need for righteousness... Paul teaches that it is man who rebelled and continues to rebel against God. God desires to see no one in hell. In fact, quite the opposite. But some men use their God-given free will to rebel against their Creator. So they bear the blame or the guilt for their actions. We don't blame it on God. That's something that we'll find out and we'll learn in this passage. With regard to the gospel, there is... A bad news, good news structure to Paul's argument in Romans. The idea of justification by faith alone in Christ alone is the central function or focus of the book. But now we embark on a unit of scripture, namely chapter 1, verse 18 through 320. 118. The major section of the book that we're in right now in which there is actually limited reference to righteousness. And then when it's found there, it's not, it's not necessarily stated that it's obtained by faith. In this section that we're in right now, we're in the bad news section right now of the book of Romans. Uh, sometimes people give the gospel in a bad news, good news way. Larry Moyer in the pamphlets that he writes, which are very fine pamphlets, by the way, that's what the approach that he uses. i got bad news for you and i got good news for you. The bad news is that you're lost. Good news is that Jesus Christ says something about it. He took that structure, it's a very biblical structure, he took it right out of the book of Romans, because that's what Paul does. The gospel is good news. 
so we must consider the study of Romans 1.18 through 3.20 as preparation for, rather than a study of, Paul's exposition per se uh, of the gospel of God's righteousness. But in it, we, we have an indispensable preparation if what Paul wants us to understand about God's righteousness is to be accepted. I guess what I'm saying is you've got to understand the bad news before you're going to be able to appreciate the good news. That's what Paul's doing now in this section of the book of Romans. For only if sin and its consequences are presented in all of its reality can we ever approach an appreciation of what was done for us on the cross. It's no wonder that so few people today appreciate grace. Because so few people today understanding how, understand how devastating sin really is. In fact, in some churches... You'd be fired as a pastor if you preach sin because some boards insist that that's, they want only positive messages. One of the largest churches in the country, headquartered here in Houston, never preaches sin. I mean, that's a, a Fox. I'm not making that up. He told that in an interview to Fox News. He said, I only want to give my congregation positive messages. And I would propose that is a horrible way to shepherd a flock. That is a horrible way because you're only giving them part of the truth and you can never understand the good and you can never appreciate grace unless you understand the bad. So that's not, that's not the way I do ministry. I'm going to preach you, I'm going to teach you as best as I can through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the full counsel of God, which includes the bad news. And that's the section that we embark upon, 118 through 320. Now, please keep in mind, in the section that we're about to enter, this section of Scripture is referring to those who have not yet been justified by faith. Or in other, in other words, they're not believers that are being referred to in 118 through 320. Now, even though you are a believer, that doesn't mean you can't learn a lot from this section. Uh, otherwise, Paul wouldn't have put it in here because he is writing the book to believers for their edification. Listen to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God, as described here, is not an issue for the believer in Jesus Christ. Listen to that statement carefully. The wrath of God, as described here, is not an issue for the believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin at the cross. The work of Christ on the cross renders all men savable, but no one's saved until they personally appropriate that payment for themselves by exercising faith in the one who paid the penalty. Okay? If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, his work has no redeeming value for you, except in the potential way. The scriptures describe you as dead in your trespasses and sins. If you've never trusted Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Now one note, according to this passage and others, sin is still a very real problem for the believer, but in a different sense. The payment Christ paid has been applied to our account. The penalty for sin, which is spiritual death, has been removed, and it will never be reapplied. It's a permanent removal. 
You can never lose your salvation. However, you can and do lose your fellowship with God every time you do something that offends His holiness after you're justified. And the remedy for that condition is confession. So, for our justification, the remedy is faith alone in Christ alone. For our restoration to fellowship after we've trusted Christ, the remedy is confession of sin. We need to keep those distinct. Some people have gotten them backwards over time and think that the remedy for our sinful state in terms of our lostness is confession. Well, that's not it. The Bible doesn't say we're to confess our sins to obtain eternal life. It says that we're to trust Jesus Christ to obtain eternal life. Others have said the remedy for post-salvation sin is faith. The Bible doesn't say that. It says that the remedy for post-salvation sin is confession. Those, those are extremely important distinctions that we need to, to make if we're to fully appreciate chapter 118 through 320. Now, something somebody's asking, I'll, I'll address it here. I think this is probably the best time I've been waiting to do this. But if somebody asked one time, if a believer was to die with unconfessed sin in the life, would they go to heaven or not? Well, of course they would. Now, now there's some very famous theologians of the past who thought that they might not. I mean, some real well-known ones of the more... Uh, reformed hyper-Calvinistic variety, but there are some that do. But, of course, they'll go to heaven. And, by the way, if you're worried about this, if you're worried about dying out of fellowship, uh, at that point, at the point that you die and go to heaven, fellowship, your fellowship is automatically restored. All the sinful things you leave back down here. So you don't have to ever worry about being out of fellowship in heaven. So, in a sense, there are two remedies for post-salvation sin. You can either confess them, or you can die, one or the other. <laughs> and dying is the harder remedy. You will, you will be restored to fellowship, but, but that's probably not the one that you wanted to hear. Why don't you turn that one? Now, back to our lesson. Paul preceded his explanation of the gospel by demonstrating in chapter 1, verse 18 through 3.20, by demonstrating that there is a universal need for it. Every human being needs to trust in Christ because everyone lacks the righteousness that God requires before he accepts us. That, that is a general message statement for 118 through 320, so listen carefully. Every human being needs to trust in Jesus Christ because everyone lacks the righteousness that God requires before he will accept us. The way that Paul outlines this, and you've heard me say it before, but even though we haven't covered Romans, we've covered some general principles from these chapters. But first, Paul's going to go after the immoral person. He goes after the easiest one first. And he makes an argument that the immoral Gentile, the immoral person, needs a Savior. And he's going to use some illustrations in here of, of some, sexual perver some sexual perversions. And all of us would say, Amen, Brother Paul. I agree that those people are perverts and they need a Savior. And so Paul says, Well, okay, I'm glad you agree with me about that. And then he moves on to the moral person probably a moral Gentile. And he says, you know what? The immoral person needed a Savior, but so does the moral person. And some of the Jews in the audience would probably want to hesitate just a little bit because they might see where Paul's going with that argument. But they'll say, well, okay, they're a Gentile. I can see where they'd need a Savior too. And then Paul concludes, oh, by the way, and he makes the case, even the Jew needs a Savior. You were born in the seed of Abraham, but you have not function the way that Abraham did, or until you do function the way that Abraham did and trust, trust Yahweh for eternal life, 
trust the Lord for eternal life, you don't have eternal life. Just because you're born a Jew doesn't mean you're automatically saved. And then he finally concludes that the whole world is under sin. And in Romans 3.23, which you might notice is, is a little bit outside this section, but it's a conclusion to it. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So every human being needs to trust in Jesus Christ because everyone lacks the righteousness that God requires before he will accept us. That's the message of these verses in Romans. While Paul will use this section to bring charges against all humanity, his chief target appears to be the Jew. And that's why he's reeling them in in his last argument. The Jews were God's people. The seed of Abraham had not... God already promised them righteousness through the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, they might argue. Well, not so fast. The Mosaic Covenant or the Mosaic Law promised blessing for those who obeyed, but no one perfectly obeyed. That's Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount. The law demonstrated then, amongst other things, the need for a Savior. The Mosaic Law demonstrates what this section of Scripture demonstrates as well, just in a compact way. Many Jews then, and today, think in relativistic terms when it comes to sin. And Paul is going to correct that thinking. Sin is sin. Sin offends the holiness of God. It doesn't matter if it's a big sin or a little sin. It doesn't matter if it's a culturally acceptable sin or a culturally unacceptable sin. It all offends the holiness of God and causes us to have a a relationship where we're separated with God. Now, again, please keep in mind, this section, the wrath of God being revealed, is not talking about you. The believer is not said to be under the wrath of God. But God's attitude towards sin is the same way today as it was before the cross. It still offends his holiness. I'll get to why that is momentarily here. So, for the wrath of God, the first phrase says, is revealed from heaven. From the time of certain Greek philosophers, the idea that God would inflict wrath on people has been rejected as incompatible with an enlightened understanding of deity. The whole idea that God would punish or or, uh, judge people for sin is considered to be less than enlightened. And the more enlightened you are, then the less you could think that a deity would ever do something quite so harsh as that. In fact, the idea really goes way back before the Greek philosophers to the very first man and woman and Satan in the garden. Because you remember what one of Satan's arguments toward Eve was about God. What did God tell you? He said, well, if, Eve says, well, if I eat from this tree or even touch it, I'm going to really die. Of course, she misquoted what God had said, but that's beside the point right now. Remember what Satan said? Yeah. God doesn't work that way. You're not going to die. You know, he's not going to kill you for committing this. It's a little sin. It's not a big one. Satan's the original moral relativist. And so this goes way back before Greek philosophers and people even of our today that think it's more enlightened if we don't think that God would ever punish us. There are denominations today, I've alluded to some of them, but... But some denominations feel like they're more intellectual, more enlightened, because they don't believe that, I guess they don't believe that sin would offend a holy God. Well, I can't see where that's really being enlightened. I can see where that's sticking your head in the sand, hoping that that's not the case. Because, see, if it's not the case, then you don't have to adjust to anything. You don't have to make any any movement in your life. 
You can just act any way you want to act, and then it'll be okay. But that's not the way that God... That's not the way that God set it up. God's wrath, then, is not a characteristic that occupies much attention in contemporary theological discussions. But in his letters, Paul frequently mentioned God's wrath. The Greek word is orge, O-R-G-E. As the apostle told the Romans, the reality of God's wrath was the reason that people needed to receive his righteousness. So the fact is that God does have an attitude about sin. It's not a good attitude either. It's a righteous one. But he's not real happy about it, to put it mildly. Wrath is the response of God to sin. And it has a present and a future aspect. The 18th verse of this chapter, the beginning of the section of the guilt of mankind, was called by Melanchthon centuries ago, an excordium terrible as lightning. In other words, a blow right to the side of the head. Serious stuff. S. Lewis Johnson, a retired professor from Dallas Seminary, one of the one of the greatest exegetes that Dallas ever produced, said it is a terrible indictment of mankind, a, a divine denunciation that expresses the revulsion of a holy God against human unbelief and rebellion. Now the word for you, you've seen that several times now in verse sixteen, verse seventeen, now in verse eighteen. It's the Greek word gar, G-A-R, and it, makes, it does make a connection with the preceding section. Even though we've started a new section, don't forget the last verse Paul is saying. So before we can take a look at verse 18 and do it well, let me remind you what verse 17 said. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And we understood that from the Greek and the Hebrew that it's quoting, is the one who is righteous by faith shall live. And that's the way a Greek reader would understand it. That's certainly the way that Luther understood it and started the Protestant Reformation because of that. But you notice the word for begins verse 17 also. So if we were doing individual Bible study, what, what would you do right now? You'd have to go back one more verse to see what that for is there for. And go. And Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the, of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith or uh, by means of faith, because it was designed for faith, as it is written, the, right, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. But verse 16 starts with a four. Also, you're starting to get the point here. Paul, Paul is building his argument from verse 8 on. And so to save you the trouble, we won't go back and read verses 8 through 15, but that's where that four came from. So Paul is continuing the thought, but there's a huge contrast between verse 17 and verse 18. In verse 17... It's the righteousness of God that has been revealed, and it's coming from the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed in it, in the gospel. But in verse 18, actually we have something that's on the other end of the spectrum attribute of, attributes of God, and that's the wrath of God. The righteousness of God is revealed or manifest from the gospel. The wrath of God, notice, is not manifest from the gospel. We said a minute ago, the gospel is good news. This is the bad news section of Romans. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, or manifested from heaven. The thing that I want you to take a look at here, the verb apokalyptetai, apokalypsis is the noun. We get the word revelation from that. The book of Revelation is taken from that uh, ver, uh, that noun. Apokalypto is the, is the verb for revealed. The verb is in the present tense. Don't miss that. Very much like what Paul does in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, 
But God demonstrates, present tense, demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is a present demonstration of God's love. Well, the wrath of God is presently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It is a present reality. Okay, so the, the verb, in light of the parallel use with verse 17, must refer then to a present continuing revelation or manifestation. The manifestation of the wrath of God toward all that offends His holiness is a present reality. Some of you might get ready to have to move a spot on your grid. This is why I asked for objectivity ahead of time. I did a paper on this two years ago at the National Teaching Pastors Conference, and some grids changed, some grids did not. But my argument came straight from Romans. The wrath of God being manifested or revealed from heaven is a present reality. That's, that's Sometimes the tenses of the verb really do matter, and it does here. Because I would remind you that the book of Romans was written after the cross. The cross has already occurred. And some of us might have as part of a grid that because sin was judged on the cross, then sin's no longer an issue for the, for the believer or the unbeliever. Now, the only, sin, the only sin that could be an issue for the unbeliever would be the sin of unbelief. That's not a biblical concept. And I offer as proof, amongst other things, Ephesians 2, 1, uh, being dead in trespasses of sin, Romans uh, 6, Romans 8, where uh, Jesus is using the same terminology. But one place that it comes out loud and clear is the wrath of God is currently, right now, being revealed from heaven against all, in the plural, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That can't refer to something that's a singular event of just rejecting him as Savior. So if you have never trusted Jesus Christ, the work that Jesus Christ did is sitting unused, and you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. So I cannot make a biblical case that the only sin for which Christ could not die is rejection of himself. Ultimately, yes. Ultimately, that's the reason everyone goes to hell, is rejecting Jesus Christ for eternal life. However... If an, if an unbeliever has not yet trusted Jesus Christ, they are still dead in their trespasses and sins. The wrath of God is currently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So the fact that, that, that judgment was made on the cross does not change God's holiness and say now he looks the other way at all unrighteousness. What it did on the cross was take away that penalty for those who accepted his work. Somebody picked this up about seven, eight, ten years ago in another city and said, because Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, therefore we don't need to confess our sins anymore. As if our sins don't offend the holiness of God. Well, at least a third of the New Testament, you ought to rip it out and throw it away because that's what the New Testament writers are doing is telling us, don't do these things. For the wrath of God is being revealed. It's a present reality. So this gives strong validation to the view that the judgment rendered on the cross is effective only for those who believe. And just because sin has been judged in no way indicates that sin is no longer a problem. Sin still offends God's holiness. And by the way, this paper that I referred to, I don't want to go over the whole thing tonight. We've done it on two different occasions. 
It's on the website, www.pinevalleybible.org. Look under academic articles, and you might just glance through that, and I'll give you the validation in that paper for all this, but but um, I don't really feel inclined to spend the time that we have here tonight on that because it covers some other passages. But sin still offends the holiness of God, even though sin was judged on the cross. Now, some people will argue back, well, that means double jeopardy. How could sins be judged twice? How could it be judged on the cross and then again in eternity? That's a fine, logical, and legal concept. But if it contradicts what I see as a biblical concept, then I've got to, then I've got to rearrange my understanding of the double jeopardy argument. How can they be judged twice? Well, the way they can be judged twice is because you didn't ever accept the remedy. You never accepted it for yourself. You said, no, thank you. I don't want that free gift. I'll do it on my own. So Christ says, uh, God, Christ at the judgment seat of, I mean, at the great white throne would say, okay, well, that's fine. Then. You want to pay for the sins of the world? yourself, for your own sins yourself rather, then you're going to keep in mind, you're going to do it for all eternity. The payment's going to last a long, long time if you don't accept Christ's remedy. That's the present tense of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being re- revealed from heaven. The exact force of this word orge or wrath is important. The term is generally repugnant to the modern mind which would prefer a God without wrath. The New Testament, however, does not know such a God. Burkhauer, the New Testament scholar, said, attempts to tone down the wrath of God are powerless in the face of the strong and frequent biblical words of threat and judgment. Only when we recognize this and proclaim the turning aside of God's wrath as as an outstanding and gracious reality, are we able the better to listen to the central message of the gospel, the real forgiveness of our sins? So unless we understand how God hates sin, we can never really appreciate the position that we're in right now. The God of the New Testament, then, is a God whose holy being is revolted by that which is a contradiction of his holiness, and he expresses his wrath in punitive justice. Here's the reality. Here's the reality. God loves enough to hate evil. In fact, his wrath is just that, the antagonism of holy love to evil. It's not a vindictive rage. It's not a quick flash or an emotional reaction. It's a sustained anger, and it's a sustained repulsion towards sin. It does not wear off with time. The Greeks had a word for that, thumos, T-H-U-M-O-S. That's not thumos here. But thumos was a quick trigger, a short temper. Uh, that's, not what the, that's not the word that's used here. It's not a quick temper where a guy gets really mad about something, and then over time it just kind of wears off. Human beings are that way, aren't we, most of the time. That's what we think about when we think about anger. You've heard it, time heals all wounds. Give it enough time. It'll be okay. Not with God. It doesn't matter if it's one year or a billion years. He still has orge, anger, wrath against sin. The only reason that he doesn't have wrath against us is we've accepted, we've appropriated the remedy that took place on the cross. Again, this section is not referring to believers in Jesus Christ with regard to us being under the wrath of God. Personally, now unbelievers are. But it, doesn't, it also doesn't teach, other, other passages will have to teach this, that 
that uh, a believer who sins does lose his fellowship with God, but doesn't come under the same wrath. The word wrath is not used of the believer in that sense. We lose fellowship, but we don't, uh, we're forever done away with, we've forever escaped the wrath of God. So God's wrath is extremely serious. Anyone who thinks God takes sin lightly need, no, need look no further than the cross to observe the terrible penalty borne by our Lord. Once you do that, then you'll get the real picture of what God thinks about sin. Where does this come from? The wrath of God then is revealed from heaven. Now, how does the manifestation of God's wrath present a present reality? Well, you see that. We won't study tonight, but we see it in verses 24, 26, and 28, at least one way that it does. In verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. In verse 28, just as they did not see to fulfill, to acknowledge God anymore, God gave them over to a depraved mind. So this threefold use of the word paradokin, in verses 24, 26, and 28, God gave them up, introduces the judicial infliction of the abandonment of men and women to the intensified cultivation of unnatural sexual perversions and other degrading vices. This is not the only way. This is a way that Paul says that the wrath of God is being manifest. One way the wrath of God is manifest against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness is to let this unrighteousness and ungodliness pursue its normal course. He says, okay, no grace for you. I'm going to let you be the product of your own decisions. And without stopping it, some of these things get really, really bad. And we see that even in our world today with some of the things like, even just to take Paul's particular sins that he picks out here, in the whole AIDS problem. You know, the people I feel terribly, terribly sorry for are the innocents, the little children, the people who, Arthur Ashe, you know, people who get that from a, from a blood transfusion. It's not that I don't feel sorry for other folks that have AIDS, but I also read passages like this and say, well, wait a minute, you know, that's the normal consequence of that behavior, just like venereal disease is the normal consequence of, of inappropriate, or that's not the right word, sinful sexual behavior between male and female. There are certain things that, that are just going to happen with, with some sort of consistency if you engage in certain bad behavior. You know, jump on airplanes without a parachute enough times, and probably one of these times you're going to die But when you hit the ground. You think so? And it's not that absurd in, in terms of the other kind of uh, behavior that people go through. So while I do pray for, for all this, uh, you know, I just don't, I don't see the point in spending billions upon billions upon billions of dollars for AIDS research when i got the answer for you right now. You don't have to pay me anything for it. Quit having sex outside of marriage. That solves billions of dollars right there. Because there wouldn't be the consequence that, that takes place. So that's part of what Paul's talking about when he speaks of the, the wrath being manifested. We'll, get to, we'll cover that when we get to verses 24, 26, and 28. The revelation of divine wrath is also seen, though, in man's own history and experience. God's judgment upon the world is also evident then in history. That which one sees today is the continuing evidence, the, rele- the revelation of the judicial infliction of the wrath of God upon the human situation. And we see that in all kinds of areas, not just in sexual sense. That just happens to be the one that Paul mentioned. But you see the wrath of God being poured out all the time. Now, it may not get poured out as fast as we'd like for it to. 
I personally, I'm going to be honest with you, I would love to see the wrath of God poured out on Al-Qaeda. I would love to see the wrath of God poured out on Al-Qaeda. And it will be in God's own timing. And, and individually and corporately, individually, I would certainly hope and, and pray for the individual salvation, even if somebody like Osama bin Laden. And if you can't pray for Osama bin Laden's salvation tonight, if that just bothers you too badly, then you're not sharing the mind of Christ. But I'd pray for his salvation, and then I'd pray for his execution shortly after that. And I mean that all my heart. I pray they'd catch him and execute him. If, if need be, stick, a, stick a, a tube of dynamite down his throat and blow it up after he's saved. Because that would be divine justice. That's the wrath of God coming down, and it's a normal penalty. Now, he's not going to go to hell. He's not going to suffer the wrath of God in that sense. The wrath of God... The object of God's wrath is the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Look at the verse again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, not some, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All, all, all. God is not a moral relativist. Here the emphasis is on God-hating sin. You know, we talk about how God hates the sin, not, not the sinner. That's true. That's a true piece of rel, uh, revelation. That's one of the pieces of the grid that we get from this passage because it's revealed against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, not necessarily the men who perform the ungodliness and the righteousness. But I got one piece of, of uh, grid shifting for you. There are other passages that talk about God hating the man who performs, or the woman who performs the sin as well. Now, that's not what's stressed here, but there are other passages that include the person because the person is, is the one who's actually doing the rebellion. And so we can't just, we can't separate them too far. Um, the, we can't separate too far the person from what the person has done. After all, nobody made the person do it. They decided within themselves to do it. The two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness, in the order that they appear in this text, express the basic truth that immorality in life proceeds from apostasy in the thought process. Immorality in life proceeds from apostasy in the thought process. And here's something that I previewed for you when we started Romans. Let me go ahead and make it explicit now instead of just implying it. The rejection of biblical truth by a culture will lead to the moral decline of that culture. The rejection of biblical truth by a culture will lead to the moral decline of that culture. And that's putting it mildly. That's putting a little bit of a, almost a sterile twist on it. You cannot, it is, it is a biblical impossibility to reject biblical truth and have that culture remain moral. It never happens. There has to be a basis upon which we, uh, which we make our laws, and there has to be a basis for our morality. And it, it's not shifting sand. If it shifts, then uh, the, the culture is in huge trouble. If it shifts with the way that we interpret the Bible into a culturally relevant uh, situation, then, um, then we're going to have problems. If it shifts in the law, then there's, there's no real law. It's just whatever the whim of the moment is. Let me give you a couple of cases in point. There's a, 
and you might have caught this over the weekend, it was reported in the mainstream media, and that is the Methodist lesbian minister back in, on the West Coast that was acquitted by the, the Methodist denomination for um, her position as, as being a lesbian. The, the vote was 11 to 0, with I think two abstentions, to find her not guilty of violating any of the standards of the Methodist Church. During this vote, the thing that just astounded me was part of this vote by these the people who theoretically know their Bible. These men said, men and women, said that, yes, the activity of lesbianism does violate biblical principles. Yes, it does. Yes, the activity of lesbianism violates the traditions and the creeds of the Methodist Church. But the activity of lesbianism, in, and they're talking about lesbianism in the pulpit, one who is a lesbian being in the pulpit, and there's some, several problems with that, but it doesn't <laughs> violate, get this, it doesn't violate cultural norms. So their statement was, we will set aside biblical norms and the traditional norms of the church and go with the cultural norms, and this is the symptom of a culture that is in moral decline because we're not holding to absolute biblical truths. Once biblical truth is rejected by a culture, it is inevitable that there will be a moral decline of the culture. So what's the application of that for us? We can scream all day long at, for example, the, the lesbian minister. But ultimately, that's not where the long-term answer lies. The long-term answer lies in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the clear teaching of biblical truth. We've got to return to it. In Jeremiah's day, if you read through the book of Jeremiah, you know who got blamed for the cultural decline in Israel? The priesthood, the shepherds who are not shepherding the sheep. It all falls back on the back of the pastors in a nation. And when they punt, when they cower and become morally relativistic in order to please the, their flock, in order to grow bigger flocks, in order to gain approbation with, with whoever it is they're trying to gain approbation with, the country is dead and it's over. It's just a matter of time. It's on life support. Let me give you another illustration from history. Most of the German clergy in the 30s went along with Hitler. And we say, how could they do that? Why would they go along? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Germany is also where the center of theological liberalism began. I know the Bible says that, but it can't really mean that. And as soon as you take away biblical authority, what do you think is going to happen? I'm not saying all ministers in Germany went along with Hitler. There were certainly a couple, two or three exceptions that were incredible men. But the fact that we can point to two or three exceptions and not 100, 150, 200, 2,000 is a big problem. You know the, another thing they were afraid of? They were more afraid of Hitler than they were of God. And you know what? Hitler killed most of them all anyway. It's kind of like the guys at the Alamo. What was there, 183 of them? One of them went over the wall? 20, 30 years later, they had all been dead anyway. You know, it's like if Hitler comes up to you, you may as well, you may as well understand I'm going to be dead anyway. I'd rather be dead with my boots on, my theological boots on, my Christian boots on, and stand for something than to buy myself four or five more years of living in cowardice. 
this is where the this is where the solution will lie, starting with you in your individual spiritual life. It's got to start somewhere. You can't say I've got to I've got to start with ten other people. It's got to start you first. You're the one that's got to start and hold to strong biblical truth. And then it's got to then this has to go to the churches. When we come together corporately, we've got to hold to biblical standards. And then not necessarily us because we're an independent church, but it would have to go to the denominations, and and so forth. Those are two cases in point. Now, this word, a couple words about this. We've studied this before, so we don't have to spend a lot of extra time on it. But this phrase, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This particular Greek word is context sensitive. It can mean different things depending on the particular context. But in, in this context, it means to hold down, to restrain, or to suppress, just like it does in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Uh, we've used this analogy before, and I can't think of a better one, so I'm going to tell it to you again. It's like having a beach ball in a swimming pool filled up with air, and you, if, you know, sometimes we play this game where you, you hide the beach ball under the water. That's this Greek word. We're suppressing the truth, but it's got to be willfully done. And one thing about that beach ball, as soon as you take your hand away from it, the natural inclination, if there's air in this, for it to pop straight up, right out of the water, splash you right in the face, and, and you come face-to-face with that beach ball, don't you? The same way with truth. If you don't continually willfully suppress it, it's going to pop right back up and face you right, right smack dab, eyeball to eyeball, and you've got to decide what to do with it. You either have to then accept it and play with that beach ball on top of the water, or you've got to go back to willfully suppressing it. Because it's very convicting to have truth stare you in the face. This meaning expresses the reaction which men in their unrighteousness offer to revealed truth. It also implies that men have some knowledge of the truth, but in spite of it, they stifle it. You have to know something of the truth in order to suppress it, don't you? You can't suppress something that you have no idea was even out there. It's not that man doesn't have access then to the truth. Man has access, but in rebellion, man willfully suppresses the knowledge that he has. The knowledge that he has we'll study in the, next, in the coming weeks through natural revelation, through creation. Okay. So as we begin the study of this portion of the book of Romans, which reveals man's need for righteousness, remember, remember these things. It's man who rebelled and continues to rebel against God. God desires to see no one in hell. Paul is very clear. God desires to see all men saved. He wants everybody to go to heaven, but he's not going to force you to. Norm Geisler put it this way. It's, it's rather crude, but, but it makes the point. God's not a divine rapist. He's not going to force you to love him. You're going to have to come on your own. God desires to see no one in hell. In, in fact, it's quite the opposite. But some men, using their God-given free will, will rebel against their Creator. So they bear the blame. They, build, they bear the guilt for their actions. And that's Paul's overarching message of Romans 1.18 through 3.20. And in the weeks to come, we'll unpack all the parts of that. Pete, can I get you to close this as long as I got you here?